As you know, we've been on this series in Luke, and so get your Bibles out and turn to Luke chapter 16. And I want to talk to you about a subject today that's uh, very near and dear to all of our hearts. Most of us value it, uh, in, in, value this subject so much. It's so important. It's so valuable to our lives. Yes, that's right. I'm talking about money. So the title of the message today is Money, 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 Money. Money! Here's the thing. Most pastors don't like to talk about money, all right? I, I really don't enjoy it because of the reputation out there of p- pastors who are just trying to get money out of people. But I want to start by just saying something to you this morning that as your pastor, I, am, I don't want something from you. I want something for you. I don't want something from you. I want something for you because I think money is one of the most important subjects that we can deal with in our lives because of the way it can grip our hearts. Money is this, this thing that we're all aware of that we need, right? It's something we need. We use it every day. Uh, we're, we're aware of it. But it, like no other, like nothing else, has the power to sort of get its clutches inside of our hearts. And, and so there's some wealthy people who have commented on this. I'll, I'll just read a few uh, quotes from wealthy men who have a lot of money. Here's what, here's what uh, Rockefeller said. He said, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. That's kind of sad. It's W.H. Uh, Vanderbilt. He said, the care of 200 million, 200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. Some of you are like, I, I, I'd like to try. I, I, just give me a shot. I am the most miserable man on earth, John Jacob Astor said. He had huge wealth. Uh, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job, Henry Ford said. <laughs> Millionaires seldom smile, Andrew Carnegie. I smile a lot. There's three lies about money that we're tempted to believe. Three lies about money that sort of, we, we, don't, we don't initially buy into them, but sort of in a, in a subversive way, they come upon us, these lies, and they, and they begin to control us. Here's the three lies. Number one, three, things bring happiness. We, we don't really believe that in our consciousness, but somehow we, um, underlying behind sort of our, our day-to-day routine, we sort of believe it. Um, number two, there are no consequences for debt. Uh, our country's facing massive consequences for the debt we're in. We're all facing uh, consequences for the, the debt that we accumulate. It's really hard. To, so, do you ever, ever notice it's so much easier to get into debt than to get out? Yeah. Number three, a little more money would solve my problem. <laughs> have you ever said that? I have totally said that. All I need is a little bit more per month. That's all I need. It's just, if I just had a little bit more money, then I would be able to solve my problems. Your problem is not a little more money. The problem is what you do with the money you have. The problem is, is the stewardship dynamic of our lives and how we deal with money. I, I like the person who said, whoever says that money can't buy happiness has not been to the right shops. <laughs> But here's the thing. Jesus has something to say about money in this chapter. And in this chapter, in chapter 16, there, is, there are th- really three sections to it. The first section talks about the parable of the shrewd manager. 
and the person who managed money. And Jesus is trying to say something beyond money in this passage. He's trying to talk about how we should not constrict ourselves to the people who... Um, who, who owe us money. He's talking about this shrewd manager who had people who owed him money. And when his master came to call to him to account and he was going to fire him, he went around to all his accounts and got half as much. And then the, Jesus called him a shrewd manager. But this was a real focused dig at the Pharisees, at the religious leaders, who were trying to squeeze God's people, squeeze more out of God's people by being more legalistic. Right? That's, really the, that's really the focus of the story. They were trying to squeeze more out of God's people, and, and Jesus was saying, look, you should, instead of squeezing, you should loosen the constraints a little bit and let people do what they can and make friends. Make friends out of these people. The Pharisees weren't known for being friendly. Jesus was trying to teach them how God works with people. He calls them to himself. He asks them to bring what they can. He doesn't squeeze down on them and force stuff out of them. And so, and so he tells this story, but then he gets to this passage on money. And then after this passage, he, he talks about the rich man and Lazarus and how they change places in the, in the next world. In this world, uh, the rich man has, has comfort and luxury, and in the next world, he's tormented. And Lazarus, in this world, as a poor man, is, is tormented here. And, and as he goes to the next world, then, then he is comforted. And so he tells these two stories, but they, they're pivoting on this teaching about, about stewardship, about faithfulness, and about money. And so we start in verse 10, and I want you to join me there and read it with me. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. A little more is not what you need. Because whatever you do with the little that you have, that's what you'll do with more. That's the problem. It's human nature. It's human nature just to want more. Whatever you do with a little bit, that's what you're going to do with a lot. And that's what the parable of the talents is all about, where Jesus describes the master giving five talents to one and two talents to the other and one talent. And he went and dug a hole and buried his one talent. And the others were faithful with their talents. And, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with little. Now I'm going to put you in charge of much. Verse 11 says, so if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Bible scholars don't really know what Jesus was referring to here as he talks about true riches. We can obviously um, understand that he was talking about heaven. He was talking about real wealth, being rich in God, being rich with God's provision for you. Um, but he's saying the way you treat your worldly wealth has implications for how you treat true riches. It has implications for how you treat true riches. Verse 12 says, and if we have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Can I just encourage you today that if you see all your money and all your possessions as things that you have been able to get instead of something that God's given you, you tend to hold them a little tighter. 
If, on the other hand, you see it as God's provision for you, the skills he gave you, the, the fact that you're a steward of everything that you have, that, you, that you're responsible to him for what you have and not just yourself, you'll think about it a little bit differently. You'll start seeing the money that you have in a different way. And so here in verse uh, 13, he says, No servant can serve two masters. Everybody hold two fingers. No servant can serve two masters. How many masters can you serve? (laughs) You can only serve one master. Either he will hate the one, love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't serve both God and money. So the question is, how do you know if you're serving money? Well, let's unpack this a little bit. Verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. They're, so Jesus is describing all this, and they're there at the, in the corner of wherever he had, he's at, and they're sneering at him. You know, you have to read the Bible for what it says. You can't just see them as these holy people. These were humans, and they were sneering at Jesus. They were mad. They were angry at this guy. They were, they were so upset at him as he was talking straight to them about their greed. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. Everybody say your hearts. He, my heart. He knows my heart. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. The stuff that our heart gets attached to that is not from God, that is not godly, it's detestable. So money is this thing. So the first big idea I want you to understand is money matters to God. Money matters to him. It's important to him. You know, there's only 200, there's only 2,000, over 2,000 verses on money and possessions in the Bible. Versus, versus here's, here's how many there are for prayer. There's about 500 on prayer. 2,000 on money and possessions. 16 of Jesus' 38 parables were about money and possessions. He was aiming at something. Money matters to him. God doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. So Matthew 6, 19, if you turn over there, just a few chapters. Matthew Past Mark, Matthew 6, if you turn with me. Matthew 6, verse 19 says, Don't store treasures here on earth where moths eat, where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your, your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart The New Living Translation says, There the desires of your heart will also be. I want you to think about this. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. The greatest test of our hearts is what we do with our treasure. The greatest test of our hearts is what we do with our treasure. What we're willing to spend it on, what we're not willing to spend it on, how we take care of it. How we, how we try to get it. The greatest test of our hearts is how we spend our treasure. You spend your treasure on good things. You spend your treasure on meaningless, foolish things. It's, it's an indication of our hearts. So, so here's the conclusion we come to. Then money is not a blessing from God. 
This is shocking to some of you. Money isn't a blessing from God. It's a test. I know, you're thinking to yourself, man, I, I feel blessed when I have money. I like, I like being blessed by money. Yeah, money's not a blessing. It, it's very bad to confuse God's blessing with prosperity. Okay, because some people are rich and they feel blessed, they look blessed by God, but they're not. They're actually living under a curse by how money owns them, rules them. Hey, hey, I know poor people. I know poor people that are just the same. They're angry at everybody, angry at the world, angry that they don't have more. And that 1% that makes so much money, they need to give me some. I'm not making any comments about our tax code. I'm just saying that they, I know people who are both on both sides of the aisle, poor and rich, and money consumes them. And so it's a test. Here's the interesting thing. Money offers us everything that God does without the moral constraint. There's something to think about. Money offers us everything that God does without the moral constraint. Think about it for a second. What does money offer? It offers provision, right? God wants to be your provider. Money offers us uh, security. We feel secure when we have more money in the bank. Money offers confidence. I always feel more confident when my bank account's full. Money offers us influence. God wants us to be influential with what his desires and his purpose and his kingdom is all about here on earth. He wants our influence to come from him, not from our money. He wants us to wield influence for his purpose and his desires. If you go to James, you know, you've, you've heard people say that money is the root of all evil. Well, money is not the root of all evil. James, or actually, it's, uh, sorry, it's First Timothy. It's Paul, and he's talking to his young apprentice, Timothy, and he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When you love it too much. But here's the thing I want you to get. Money's just a tool of conversion. Everybody say Conversion. You just convert it from one thing to another. You convert your time and energy at work, and you convert it into a paycheck. And then that paycheck you receive, it's converted into things that you need. Converted into stuff. Converted into food. Converted into boats and cars. Right? So, you, so in, in, in an older time, more simpler time, or in some countries to this day, there's a bartering system where your time and energy is then converted to Things that you need, food and otherwise. Money is not the enemy. Hey, I I want us, what I want to encourage you on today is to avoid having money be the driving force in your life. What I want to encourage you on today is you cannot serve two masters. You must serve only one. And Jesus is highlighting it here. You cannot serve only. Money. It's, I heard somebody say the other day, we, we work ourselves, we, we give up our health to make enough money to pay for our health insurance to fix our health. <laughs> That's a problem. That's a problem. When we, when we are so driven to get more money that we ruin our health as a result, it doesn't make any sense. It means money is in charge. 
And it's easy to happen. It sneaks up on you. So the question is, do you have money or does money have you? Now, I want to help you understand one of the ways, I think there's a fundamental and primary way that we keep money as believers, as God's people, from gripping our hearts, from grabbing a hold of us. We keep money from ruling us by doing something really practical that I think the Bible encourages us in. Point number two, it's tithing. Tithing teaches us to honor God. Tithing teaches us to honor God first. Some of you are in your head, you're going, oh, here we go. Here's the pastor. He's going to talk about tithing. Look, there's, there's something here in the practical outworking of taking 10%. A tithe, you know what tithe means? Tithe, if you've never heard that word before, it's in the scripture. It's kind of the biblical standard for giving. Tithe just means a tenth. It's a tenth. A tenth of all that you have. We'll read some scriptures about it here. But tithing is a practical and disciplined way to honor God with your money. And I, I've, I've been practicing it since I was a little kid. Um, my dad was a pastor, so there was no other choice in our family. And so I, I, I believe in this principle of tithing. But here's the thing. Let me, let me share with you an idea. Tithing isn't about the law. The Old Testament. So I know some people, they say, well, tithing, we're under, the, we're under the new covenant. We don't tithe anymore. Well, listen, I, I think Jesus confirmed it in Matthew 23. But, but before that, I want you to understand that, that the, the idea of tithing came from Abraham. Abraham. We're not going to turn there because we don't have time. But Genesis 14, 20, and Hebrews both talk about it. Both talk about how he, Abraham tithed to the priest named Melchizedek. And he tithed, I want you to think about Abraham for a second. He didn't have the law. He didn't have any of the scriptures that we have today. He didn't have anywhere to read that he needed to tithe. Where did he learn it? Where did he learn it? He, there was something there, there's something here about his conversations with God. Do you remember when Abraham had the conversation with God about Sodom and Gomorrah? I was just watching the Bible, the History Channel, right, this, this miniseries. How many have been watching that? It was fantastic. I saw this. I saw it happening, and he was talking with God, and is, is, is there 50? Is there 40 righteous people in Sodom? Is there, is, there, is there 30? Is there 20? He got all the way down to 10. He's having this dialogue with God, and finally God says, I'll save the city for 10 righteous people. Sadly, as you know, no one was saved except for Lot and his immediate family. And his wife, of course, was turned into a pillar of salt as she looked back longing for the city. And so Abraham had this conversation with God, and it affected him in a way. He was, he was a person who was generous. He, he was blessed by God in this crazy experience where God told him to go to a land and, and he said he'd, he'd make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and, and God started blessing him and giving him all this stuff and he, Lot who was his nephew was he, he got all kinds of stuff and he was blessed because of Abraham and they, they got so much stuff that they couldn't get along together have you ever noticed that when people get really rich they have a hard time getting along oh, you, you just got to watch the housewives of Atlanta or 
Orange County or wherever else. They, there's so many cities now, it's ridiculous. It's embarrassing. You watch some of these shows and it's rich people just miserable. What happens is, um, to Abraham and Lot, is their, their, their servants are fighting and quarreling. So Abraham says, look, you, you, you choose the land you want. You go this way, and I'll go this way. You go that way, I'll go this way. You go east, I'll go west. You can have what you want. Abraham understood what it meant to be generous, to be a giver. I mean, we have only to look as far as Genesis 22, where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his own son named Isaac. God's made this huge promise to him. He's going he's to give him descendants. He's going to give him the two Ds, descendants and dirt. Dirt and descendants. He's going to give them all to him. And, and so, he, so he promises in this, and, but then what God says to him is, will you be willing to serve me? Even to the point of offering what you think is the hope of all your descendants. Takes him up onto Mount Moriah. They travel for three days. Isaac is put on the altar. And, and there he's ready to, to sacrifice him and give him to God. And the angel of the Lord calls out to Abraham and he says, Abraham, don't do it. Now I know. The Lord God says to you, I, I know that you really love me. And that you're really willing to serve me. That you're willing to withhold nothing. And in fact, if you read Genesis 22, what you see is Abraham hears from the angel. He says, because you have withheld nothing from me, I'll withhold nothing from you. Listen now. It's hard. It's hard It's hard to tithe if you're not used to it. But let me describe why I think it's important. Tithing is about your first and best. Tithing is about your first and best. It's not just about 10% giving to the Lord. If you go to Exodus chapter 13, everybody go to Exodus. Come on, go over here to Exodus 13 and let's talk about it just for a few moments. Exodus 13 chapter 2, or chapter 13 verse 2, it says, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male, the first Offspring of every womb among the Israelites belong to me, whether human or animal. So what is he saying here? He's saying, consecrate to me the firstborn, all your firstborns, whether it's human or whether it's animal. I I want you to give them to me and dedicate them to me. If you go down to verse 12, he's, he's describing how this works. Verse 12, it says, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. And then then verse 13, he gives a little caveat. He says, redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. Now, a donkey was an unclean animal. So if you have a donkey, you've got to redeem it with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, (laughs) break its neck and redeem every firstborn among your sons. No instruction to break your son's neck. Okay, so, but here's what you had to do with your son. If you had a firstborn son, you were to redeem him. You were to redeem him with a lamb. 
You were, there was a redemption that was happening here. The firstborn was to either be sacrificed or redeemed. That's the, that, that's the rule that God was laying down. The firstborn was either to be sacrificed or redeemed. Every time one of your livestock animals delivered its firstborn, we were, you, you were supposed to sacrifice it. Or if it was designated unclean. Are you following me? Unclean. If it's unclean, you, you're supposed to redeem it with a clean, spotless lamb. So the clean firstborn had to be sacrificed, and the unclean firstborn had to be redeemed. Okay, now follow me for just a second. The clean firstborn was to be sacrificed. The unclean firstborn had to be redeemed. Just briefly about your money. I, I believe that tithing has to do with redeeming all that God's given you. There's something about that 10% that blesses the rest. That's how it works. The rest is blessed as you redeem it, as you sacrifice it with that 10%. Now, here's an interesting little idea. Jesus was God's firstborn son. Think about this. Jesus was God's firstborn son and born clean. He was totally pure, totally spotless. What did John the Baptist call him? He saw him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. He was born a pure, spotless lamb, but every one of us was born unclean. Therefore, Jesus was sacrificed for us. He was sacrificed to redeem us who are unclean. Think about it. Jesus was clean, sacrificed for the unclean. Jesus is God's tithe to us. Jesus was God's firstborn son. He tithed him to you and to me so that we could be blessed, so that we could be redeemed. Look, tithing is not just about money. It's about a state of your heart. It's about understanding what God wants to give you and what he's trying to give you. It's it's not just about God needing your money. God doesn't need your money. He needs your heart. Tithing is most about prioritizing God above as the first thing in our lives, especially in the area of finances. If you turn back over to Matthew, if you turn back over to Matthew 23, and Matthew 23, verse 23, all the way over, keep going, Matthew 23. If you're on your smartphone, say, yeah, Okay. If you're there in your Bible, say yeah. Here's what Matthew 23 says. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. If you have your pen, you should underline that little phrase there. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. This is where I think Jesus says, yeah, tithing is a really good thing to do. It's really helpful. But what is he saying? He's saying that if you tithe begrudgingly, if you give 10% to God, it doesn't matter anyway. Your heart's a mess. So you could come to the conclusion, well, Pastor Ross, are you saying that if your heart's a mess, then don't tithe? No, no, there's no, Jesus is saying go the other way. 
Deal with your heart. Deal with your heart in the weighty matters of mercy and justice and faithfulness. And look, here's what I believe. I think when you settle the financial issue, when you settle giving with a, with a good, clean heart, it's the gateway to other, more substantive and weighty issues. Because once you settle money, it's easy to deal with mercy with other people. You have mercy on others and you want to give them something. Once you settle the money issue in your own heart, it's easy to be faithful because you know it's really not about you and getting the money that you need. It's about God being provider and you're faithful to him. You are working as unto him, not just for your boss. Once you settle the money issue, then then it leads to all these weightier matters. This is what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees as he's encouraging them to change their heart. But here's the thing. Tithing is about life. It's not about law. It's not about the rules. Look, I don't don't need you to tithe. You need you to tithe. Right? Like, like, Like what you do is you settle all these issues in your heart. And if you've never tithed before, here's what I want to tell you. Don't get all bent out of shape over it. Start with 1%. 1%. 1% this month. I'm going to tithe and I'm going to give it to my local church. By the way, I believe the tithe, according to Malachi, comes into the storehouse and the storehouse is the place where we get food together and where we share it with our community and we share it with people in need. So I think tithing goes to your local church and then offerings go to other people. Other ministries, other things like that. All right? I think that's how the Bible describes it. And so there's a, there's a thing here. As you settle tithing, it's life to you. It becomes life to, 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 to your relationship with God. It becomes love. It becomes an expression of obedience and love. It's not law. And if you've never done it before, start with 1%. Then go to 2% next month. Then 3% the next month. Then 4% the next month. And by 10 months, you will be at 10%. I guarantee you something will be different with your finances. If you've been that willing to spend time and energy on taking one, two, three, four percent of what you're doing and giving it to God and wrestling through the heart issues that that creates, you're going to see God do something really awesome in your life. And here's why. Because point number three, last point, giving grows us in godliness. Giving just, becoming a giver is something that God wants for you. Why? Because he was the best giver. He is the best giver that there is. He gave his one and only son. Generosity is the best reflection of God that we can have. Generosity is the best reflection of God we can have. Think of John 3.16. All right, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave See, becoming like God in our generosity is so important. It's, it, it's, it's a, uh, I think it's a, it's a picture for people. When we are generous with them, when we take care of them, when we offer what we have to them, it, it speaks volumes about who God is. That's why we need to give to the poor. That's why we need to share with those in need. That's why we need to have a, a benevolence fund that's here that when people come to us, we can just say yes because the people of God have been so faithful that we can, we can help you meet the need. 
If you, I'll just put 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 up here. This is the Apostle Paul. He's talking about generosity. He says, remember this. A, former, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart. Where do you, where do you decide? You don't, you, you, don't, <laughs> you don't decide by pressure, by emotional, some, some, some sort of um, appeal. You decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Now look, I've practiced this all my life. I could tell you a story. I won't take time to do it now. I'll just mention it. My house in Colorado Springs, when I left there to come plant this church three years ago, sold in a day. We didn't know how it was going to work, but we put it on the market, put the sign in the yard, and this lady called us and said, the Lord's been speaking to me about buying your house. It took her three and a half months to work out all the details, but that was the perfect amount of time for us and what we needed to go at just the right time. I don't know how to work that out. I couldn't have done it myself. I was scared to death. That's a big move. You're trying to sell your house, and in this market and economy, that was really hard. I think it's directly related to me and my family being willing to tithe all of our lives. Everything that comes into our house, we just take 10% and we give it to God. We give it to our local church. We just do it. It's just a practice. It's just a discipline. The latest story is so fun. I knew that when we came to, to, um, to plant this church, that we, would, uh, we were giving up a, a career. I was giving up um, a certain amount of money that I was making to plant a church. And so I, I knew that we were giving up really helping our kids who were within a few years of going to college. We were giving up really helping them. And so I prayed about that, and, and I, was, I, I wrestled through it. And at the end of the day, I just there's no choice but to obey and to trust God. And so I prayed about that many times. Well, my son, Zachary, is my oldest son, um, he was right down here. Here he is. He is an impressive young man, I must say. Yeah. If you know him, you see him. He's, he's impressive. So I don't want to minimize his impressive nature by telling you that uh, God did something for him and for his dad that was so amazing as he was looking around for college. And he went up to Oral Roberts University, private university out of state, you can imagine, ridiculous. I just knew it wasn't possible. I knew that only God could make it happen. Well, Zachary goes through this interview process for a scholarship called the Whole Person Scholarship, and he, he goes through it, and he and, and he's, goes for an interview, and he's you know, going through the whole process, writing essays and all that. It turns out he gets one of 20 scholarships, $20,000 a year, to go to college for four years. Now, as much as I want you to think that he's awesome, I, I can tell you who's really awesome is God. 
working us and walking us through the prospect of what it looks like to do this. I am, I am totally convinced that not only is he impressive, but it's directly related to our stewardship and our willingness to honor God first. Any, any one of those six or 700 pe- people, six or 700 kids that interviewed for that scholarship could have gotten it. Only 20 kids got chosen. There is something powerful about this kind of obedience. Giving begins to grow us in godliness. It begins to make us more like God. It begins to share his life with others. We begin to see how he's changing us and transforming us. So I want, you to, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. You can't serve God and money. Be disciplined. Be a good steward. Try tithing. It will help you. Close your eyes. Bow your heads. Father, would you teach us? Would you, would you help us? Would you train us? Would you give us understanding about how to use our money and, and, and what we should do? How to budget, how to be a good steward, how to save. How to be honorable. Lord, some of us have really made a lot of mistakes with our money. And we just come before you right now. We say, we're so sorry. Please forgive us. Please forgive us. Give us another opportunity, Lord. Help us in our current situation, our current circumstances, to begin to honor you with what we have. Help us, Lord Jesus, to to give to you first and then to experience your blessing and and then to be able to share with others. Lord, this is the picture of the church. This is the picture of our lives. We want want to reflect you to the people in need. So, Lord, here, as some of us are in need, we choose today to give. We choose to give to you. We choose to give you our lives, everything. Take it all, Lord. Take it all. Take our hearts. Take our minds take our habits, take our successes, take our failures. We give it all, and we ask you to now use it. Use it in our lives to change us and use it in others to help them see who you are. Father, we we pray this prayer. We offer ourselves as givers in Jesus' name.